my view, trade has got a very myopic view. Me so they have a view of what is happening around themselves. And you won't believe it. 70% of the styles we were supposed to manufacture were two pieces, three pieces each. How often do you say that I will only buy this particular product if you got all the sizes from 6 to 30? Then only I am willing to consider. So hi, welcome to uh, our monthly podcast, Blue Bites, where we bring very, very interesting personalities across uh, for all of you uh, to listen to and learn from. And today I have a very, very interesting person with me. A lot of you may know, know him. A lot of you may have heard of him. He is Mr. C.S. Suryanarayan. And he is a very well-rounded business leader with a vast experience spanning over 40 years in the lifestyle, retail and consumer goods industry, cutting across several functions. Having worked in leadership positions in Levi Strauss, Asia Pacific and in senior roles in Pepsi and Unilever. He has a rich understanding of business operations and expertise in the areas of strategy and business development, business transformation and capability development, general management and business operations. In the recent past, he has been consulting for companies in Asia to build their future roadmap and capability to grow their operations profitably. Suri has a reputation of being a versatile leader with integrity and a highly and is highly trusted by all those who worked with him. He has a track record of working successfully across several cultures and countries globally. He understands and shapes the big picture and is equally at ease with details. Suri has been a member of the board of directors of Levi Strauss Foundation. He is an alumnus of uh, IIT Kanpur and he acquired a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering there. Outside of work, he has a keen interest in Indian classical music, sports and paints occasionally. So, Suri sir, welcome to the podcast. I thought uh, this is a good opportunity for us to uh, chat about some of the things that we talk offline. And, uh, you know, this is one of those occasions where I thought we'll have a slightly uh, closer look at some of the myths or some of the things that we seem to bind ourselves with, some of the ideas that, they, you know, we seem to have as a business. Uh, that seem to actually hold us back. And of course, we've talked about it earlier in some of the other, uh, you know, way, but I thought it would be a nice thing to actually allow our, uh, you know, viewers to actually also, uh, you know, uh, uh, to have you share your experiences and your uh, understanding of certain things. So let me ask by a very, ask this, start this by asking a very simple question. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, you've been uh, in the industry for, I think, more than 40, 45 years now. And you've seen companies through many, many phases of their uh, existence. And you work very closely with uh, international organizations, Indian companies, startups, and a very wide plethora of, uh, you know, work and a very large body of work that you have. So the question that I have for you is a very simple one. And I want to start with the what I feel is probably the bane of a lot of problems in our industry today. And that is planning. And my apologies to all our viewers who are planning, who are in planning. But, uh, uh, but, but, uh, but uh, you know, it's very interesting because, for example, when uh, the current government came into power, one of the first things they did was they removed the uh, planning commission, which used to do these five-year plans. And, and the argument that they actually put forward was the fact that uh, they said that, look, 
you know this whole planning long term planning makes things very stiff and it's not fast to react so rather you know they move to a model where they have a general direction but they react very quickly to things that are happening and as long as they continue moving in that direction so of course that is how they looked at it but how do you see planning in our industry and what do you think uh, uh, works or does not work what are the myths that are there i mean over to you well um thank you for this uh, you know this interesting introduction and what you want me uh, to share with you um, planning is a fairly abused word you know i think that uh, the way i would look at planning and is that in what context are you looking at planning and for that i would like to say that we are right now in a in a world which is typically called the buka world you know, volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous obviously i mean by definition this was not the case a few years ago or a couple of decades ago so therefore when the environment is changed i think the definition and the way in which planning needs to be approached has to be somewhat different than what used to be it stands to reason however let's first of all understand what planning is all about so the planning is all about you know you have a, a strategic plan a strategic plan is all about trying to understand what is it what are the kinds of things what is our ambition what do we really want to where do we want to play how do we want to win what capabilities do we want to build where do we have the competitive advantage and where do we where do we think that we have a reason to be successful and so on so forth now that is a must uh, must have now that is also an integral part of the entire planning however in order to complement that and i think that once you have a strategic plan and you have a clear direction and a vision and a mission and you have your strategies lined up the next thing comes to uh, execution and for which typically i mean there are financial targets there are operational targets and that is where i, I think that the question is that should we plan for a period of 5 years should we plan for a period of 10 years obviously given the current situation where things are changing so rapidly it may not make uh, that kind of sense however some kind of a broad plan has to be made with actually some i would say a huge focus on our capabilities to be able to react to a change situation you need to plan for that so whatever we want to do there has to be a broad plan but knowing fully well that situations can change so i would say that what we need to be prepared for is that a few things will go wrong will not go as per what we have assumed and therefore do we have the capability and the wherewithal to be able to potentially cope up with a different situation that we pan out so i would say that not just planning for the sake of planning and just filling it with numbers what i would say that there is a huge merit in terms of a, a well thought out strategic plan and i think more importantly i would say scenario planning what if a happens what if b happens what if c happens and we have to be able to anticipate those kind of scenarios and i would say planning provides you a platform or a framework to be able to do that kind of form i mean well organized scenario planning anticipating various events that can unfold and therefore helps us to prepare that so i would say that planning is very important but it cannot be without actually a, a significant element of responsiveness to dynamically emerging situations that is what i would say no thanks and that is uh, that's that's uh, i think that's really putting things in perspective uh, but how does it work in our industry i mean what is the typical kind of growth they look at and what are the kind of traps that one could fall into so i would say that uh, given my experience in different uh, places uh, i think that the way in which people look at planning is very very different it is uh, it is actually driven by 
you know, uh, the uh, the enthusiasm or the environment around. Uh, let me give you an example. For instance, if you go to a place in Japan and you say that we are planning a five percent growth, people would say that we are smoking. And uh, on the other hand, you say five percent growth in India, they would say, "Why did you look for some other job? This is not the place you need to be." So therefore, I think there is a lot of cultural effects of this thing in Japan. To say anything more than half a percent growth, people will be very, very shy of actually making any kinds of commitment. Whereas in a place like India, almost any planner that you ask, and I have interviewed so many planners in my past. So how would you plan? How would you plan for you know going forward? The first typical answer is we'll plan for a fifteen percent growth. Now this fifteen percent growth, somebody has told them, is the right thing to do if you want to actually get everything right. Because it seems to be a panacea for everything that can potentially go wrong, and people say that oh, if you plan for fifteen percent growth, I think that even if there are some blemishes, everything will actually be taken care of. So one of the myths that people, uh, I mean, should be clear about is the fact that growth is not an automatic percentage. It is not actually something which is built by consensus. What is important is what are the sources of growth. What is it that you have actually an ability to leverage in order to drive growth? Far better than somebody else. So in this particular case, if every company were to plan 15% growth, and if everybody succeeds, then industry must be growing by at least 15%. But that is not reality. So typically, I tell people saying that you know, believe me that in other corporate rooms or corporate uh, you know rooms also, people are talking about 15-20%. If everybody does that, then uh, I mean it's a I mean it's a win-win situation for everybody. It doesn't happen that. So I think what is extremely important is to be able to. Identify very clearly your sources of growth. We have a product advantage. We have actually a distribution advantage. We have actually a, a supply chain advantage, or do you actually have a people advantage? So I think that when you look at that and then say, where is my growth going to come from? Then once you start building up that picture, so I think a good approach is a top-down and a bottom-up planning, which will give you some sense of you know sanity of where exactly that growth could be. Maybe given your limitations. I mean, and also second thing is, what can you afford to actually do in order to drive growth? Because growth also requires investment. Now, you may have the capability, you may not have the capability. But depending on that, one will have to actually, you know, manage based on the constraints that you have, and then actually leverage your strengths and see what does it ultimately result in. If it results into twenty-five percent growth, go for it. If it results in some in five percent growth, then you really need to reflect, saying that. May not be good enough, but can you really go for a blind fifteen percent growth? Because if you blindly go for a fifteen percent growth, it could actually have you know repercussions of many many things, and typically lands up in you know building up ma- massive amount piles of inventory, which are never going to be sold, and then it actually goes and lies in a I mean for the next couple of years, and which people find multiple ways to actually uh, you know reuse and recycle, and they call it uh, rebarcoding. <laughs> so, yes. which is you know considered to be a, a great panacea for this, but that is an ultimate disaster. So there are many of these things that actually one wrong step leads to another. So that is why I'm saying that the most important thing is to be able to make a very realistic assessment of growth. Now, once again, growth needs to be very clearly defined. Is it profitable? Profitable growth. Growth by itself has no meaning. It has to be profitable growth. So, is it an EBIT growth? Is it actually a growth in terms of market share? Or is it actually a growth in terms of top line? So these things have got to be crystal clear and prioritized one below another. It is not possible to have all these kind of things firing on all cylinders, and therefore I think 
his entire aspect of growth needs to be very very carefully considered and very often the problems of growth are typically created by the top management's ambition to grow by 20% whereas this is their capability of the system to be able to deliver even a 10% growth is suspect so therefore on one hand you have huge ambition without the ability to be able to do that therefore this results in a whole lot of disappointment and then of course blame games and so on and so forth demotivation so i think that when we plan for something it has got to be a smart plan and therefore i think that while directionally the vision is right and everything is right you may have to actually make sure that you are also making something which is achievable but definition and prioritization in terms of the growth now has got to be very clearly defined oh no i i think that is uh, uh, that is absolutely true uh, tell me something you know today the whole industry is grappling with dramatic changes that are happening uh, for example this whole d2c business has come in they have they have completely changed the whole concept of go to market you know they go to market almost every hour if nothing else uh, and so on and so forth but you know tra- traditional businesses continue to work in seasons and then you have a line plan then you have a range presentation then you call everybody in uh, how do you see this all fitting into and does it really impact uh, uh, business uh, what is your take on this so i think that uh, i mean to give a an example i would say that you need to be very clear that are you going to be a participant in a marathon or in a 100 meter race you cannot actually you know use the marathon style in order to win a 100 meter race or vice versa the problem here is that there are certain fundamentals that needs to be factored in order to be able to decide which one you want to choose for example if you were to actually you know choose this concept of what is typically referred to as the endless aisle concept in an online business it's a great thing where the proposition is that infinite choice i mean nothing uh, nothing can be better than that but then that infinite choice can be done provided you are not holding that inventory you do not actually having the cost of owning that inventory and for example the amazon books if you look at it they are not holding a single piece of inventory but actually there are a whole lot of publishers and other people who hold it so therefore it is a extremely viable model to do that however the moment you start holding inventory this model will actually collapse because even the largest operator like walmart world over they only actually cater to i mean it, if 100 is the total number of options their options would be less than 10% so for somebody as big as walmart because there you need to look at actually not so much you know the kind of uh, you know the infinite choices that you provide but you need to look at being smart in uh, smart in terms of being able to pick products that gives you the highest return in terms of the investment so the definition of success completely changes saying that i want to have the highest roi versus actually trying to say that i will actually provide the highest variety of choice the problem comes when you actually want to mix the mix the two saying that i have to keep on infinitely increasing the choice and uh, one of the things that you will very commonly see in the industry is people say that i got an extra category i'll get extra business you know and so i have got tailored shirts i'll actually also include something else i'll also put some ceremonial shirts i'll also do this shirt that shirt etc at the end of the day there are only that much of demand which is there and the demand gets distributed so therefore the roi starts dwindling like anything whereas that would not be the case if you're actually doing a um, you know completely no inventory ownership business because it doesn't matter so therefore you can't replicate one on another so one has to be extremely careful in terms of in terms of the kind of choice that you make 
in terms of the model that you want to operate on and that would clearly determine what you can do and what you cannot do. Therefore, for a traditional business, by definition, where they own inventory, it is almost impossible to actually do this uh, endless eye concept or a multiple choice and, you know, releasing a product every hour and things like that. It is just not doable. But the question is that you've got to make a strategic choice. I'm not going to be in that market. I'm going to be in a market where I give a great customer experience to a customer who visits the store, has the pleasure of actually touching, feeling, making choices. And therefore, when that person is actually into that particular mode, then you need to see what is my point of view in terms of the brand? What is it that I have unique to offer? What is it that I have differentiated to offer? How can I actually give them a great experience? Those becomes actually very, very primary to the story. The reason I'm saying that is that, you know, there are a lot of interesting things. Now, for example, you would look at, um, you know, the starting right from an event like your, what is typically called my trade show. Typically a huge collection of uh, you know distributors who supply to six feet counters that cannot actually take more than maybe 75 units or 100 units per store. So they want to see a, a trade presentation of 3000 options and people say no 3000 is what is required. I think here is where a fundamental mistake is being made because what you have done is that you have actually um, you know let loose one of the greatest driver of inefficiency you know, in terms of the productivity of your option. Now, you don't have a point of view. You're saying that you go and pick anything you like. So the, then as a brand, what are you doing? Number two is that, I mean, do you have a point of view? Do you, I mean, you forget about all the principles of differentiation and marketing, branding, creating a unique uh, franchise of consumers and so on and so forth. And let yourself uh, lose to, uh, you know, a set of people who, who they have, who possibly don't have a clarity in terms of what the brand is all about. They are trying to actually do something put together. That's actually, uh, in my view, uh, a disaster. What would be absolutely appropriate is for a brand to very clearly say that in a six-week counter, this is how we need to come across. This is how we want to be present. These are the number of set of options. By all means, if you want to put 50 options, show them 150 options. That's not a problem. But certainly not six times, seven times. Because you have actually, I mean, killed the design and development team. And then you actually created a whole plethora of choices which neither the brand understands nor they actually the consumer understands. It doesn't make any sense. So this is one of the things that I'm saying is that this comes from the fact that you need to actually have the asset efficiency in your mind before you actually start looking at the top line growth. So this is one of the first things that I would say. And it's a matter of discipline. And it comes from a lack of confidence in terms of being able to project your brand and being convinced about it and being passionate about it. And I think this is a good learning because some of the best brands actually do this in a very, very disciplined manner. No, this is fantastic. In fact, uh, if I may, uh, uh, you know, tell a small story or a small anecdote. Uh, I remember when I uh, when I just taken over my sourcing uh, function uh, in uh, uh, in my previous uh, organization. Uh, I think about three weeks or four weeks down the line, I was called in for a review, and I was told, "Look at all these options. Nothing is coming." And I just taken over. I just done maybe one review till then, and I still had didn't have a hold of the figures. And I got the shock of my life. There was just so much stuff that had not come in, and I was like, okay, let me go back and get back to you. And I went back, and you won't believe it. Seventy percent of the styles we were supposed to manufacture were two pieces, three pieces each, because we were offering a full sleeve in the same fabric, a half sleeve in the same fabric, different color options so by the time you got around to it this the variance was absolutely crazy 
and this was for a mass brand right and uh, it just didn't make i mean we couldn't make head or tail of it so i finally went back and said look i don't even know how you expect me to make this and why we even bothered to create so much variety because this is going to take the cost dramatically up uh but another thing which i've also seen is when we do things which are more customized which typically means we also take a higher cost to do this but somehow the market doesn't seem to be willing to absorb customization cost anyway but keeping that aside uh, i just want to ask you another very interesting question sorry i'll probably deviate a little from the topic but we all we seem to be selling in size sets okay and i have never understood the concept of size set because by and large you know uh, this side sets seems to be creating a very large inefficiency in actually the uh, you know size wise skews that occur in non selling uh, products particularly uh, in places where uh, throughput is not so high so what is your take on it why do you think you know we don't really try and kind of get to that whole thing because this is a hugely inefficient uh, so i have a, a view which is very contrary to what you normally hear in possibly from every store where you go and ask a particular person in the sales store in a sales store and you would say that no no you are having a problem of cut sizes and then we i mean cut sizes is the very common uh, commonly you know commonest but i i would ask a question let's for example deviate from the category that you are dealing with apparel let's move to footwear how many times i mean if you go to the a footwear store and you say that the guy says that what's your size and then you know he says yours is 8 or 9 or 7 or whatever it is and then he then he says that please make a choice and then he says i like this one can you get me my size how often do you say that i will only buy this particular product if you got all the sizes from 6 to 13 then only i'm willing to consider this so it makes no sense a customer ultimately wants to see whether the product that they are looking for is available i would say that in order to simplify this whole thing the key question to ask is do you have the necessary product available available is product availability good it doesn't matter in what size because you have multiple ways to even display product for example in some store they pro- they display product by sizes where is the question of the size set there is one particular thing which is you know you go around it you know in a department store you can see all the sizes on a particular angle you go to another rounder you will find that there is another size set another size which is there you are not saying that i want to go through all the rounds and see whether all the sizes are there then only i will buy this i think this is a, a absolutely a misplaced sense of uh, i would say uh, you know importance and i think it has got no logical bearing whatsoever because i would say that for example if uh, there are a lot of consciously offered size sets where you will not possibly give triple xl no does it mean that uh, i mean it doesn't make any sense i don't think that is relevant at all and i think this is one of the biggest uh, disasters because what happens is that the moment you have a cut size you actually remove some of the other products from the main this thing and you put it in some corner and you actually create obsolete products by preventing them from getting sold where actually it could have got sold i think there are far better ways to handle this and this cut size problem is purely a, a mindset issue it is nothing more than that and i think that this can be easily overcome but it is there in the industry everywhere and the moment there is a cut size and they say no no this is now not fit for being kept in a in an exclusive showroom and so on and so forth but i think ask the customer who cares they are the least bothered and not only in one category i told footwear for example if you go to travel bags i mean there are different types of uh, travel suitcases do you say that i am only willing to look at 
this one provided you show me all the sizes in a particular black color or a blue color you don't do that you look at a particular thing saying that okay what do i like and then you look at various choices so i think that this is much more of a i mean is is more of a self created uh, you know problem rather than actually uh, it being a real problem as far as customers is concerned and i think i would also say that the department stores by and large are also exploiting this i mean uh, you know because they i mean typically they don't own inventory and therefore i think that they push brands to say that okay you know cut size take it out i want you to provide keep on so i think for them the cost of inventory is zero but for the brands it's a key issue so i think therefore uh, if you really want to look at it in a very objective way one would one would need to look at how do i display in the event what is the best way to actually display now if you don't have a typically popular sizes you don't have a medium size you don't have a large size then you are obviously not catering to a large number of people but there are people who are small and who are extra large how do you want to display those products because it is still well within the life cycle of its uh, entire journey so i think that that calls for an innovative way to actually display those products as opposed to saying that it has come to the end of its life cycle it has not come to the end of its life cycle oh there's a very interesting point that you put across the fact that uh, uh, display can actually make a huge difference to actually inventory management per se and how do you uh, keep things uh, going on uh, no no thanks and uh, uh, so uh, i'll come to uh, another very interesting question before i move to the point here which i had uh, now uh, typically uh, you know uh, we have seen that a lot of time is uh, you know is spent so i have this uh, i have this little thing which happens where everybody wants things to move very fast in the supply chain but i have fund, you know the fundamental the truth of the matter is if a product takes 25 minutes to make it takes 25 minutes to make machine touch time if it is including queuing if it takes 15 or 20 days to make it takes 15 or 22 and that has not changed in the last 20 30 years nor is it likely to change but everybody wants things done faster but when you actually look at the calendar of an organization right from beginning to end we apparently take 5 to 6 months to decide what to make and the manufacturing time stays by and large that 3 months odd period right why does nobody actually look at reducing this 5 6 months of deciding what to make and make that much more efficient and allow hence many more iterations to go to market or many more you know go to market cycles or whatever because your by and large your production time more or less remains the same even with agile manufacturing there is a, there is a lot you can do but it is not going to make a significant five month difference in the cycle it could make a few weeks difference in the cycle right so why does nobody look at the bigger cake and actually try and cut that down what's your kind of take on this i think i mean my view on this one is uh, uh, a combination of factors so one is that manufacturing process by and large is very very you know left brain driven i mean it, certain things happen in a particular way you can measure every step and so on and so forth but when you talk about designing a complete product line you come into the world of you know some fuzzy logic because anything to do with creativity is a bit fuzzy so the question is that you know uh, you can spend 10 days trying to think about an idea no obviously creative processes are far more difficult it's not it's not easily measurable you got to get inspiration you have to create a differentiation and so on and so forth but that is the right side of the brain you know which actually you 
know, it's sometimes difficult to manufacture. But in today's context, I mean, you don't have infinite time to actually also do that creativity. Creativity has also got timelines and boundaries and therefore there is a lot of pressure in terms of doing things fast. I think the second part of it is in terms of, you know, the, uh, the understanding what the market needs. And I think that this has significantly changed with the advent of technology. The reason being that you have possibly, for example, you know, the power of computation is so much that you know that, okay, what are the trends which are growing? What are the trends which are, you know, declining? Earlier, it used to be that people would go to the market, visit so many things and come back. Today, there are alternate ways to actually do this by scraping the net and figuring out what are the most successful designs, what are all the most popular designs. And I think the time that you need to spend, and given the fact that this is an inexact science, you can actually compress the time in a very, very significant way. Now, these are all some of the things which you can do from a design perspective. However, from a design perspective, there are certain things like, you know, strategy, where you have to drive a strategy by looking at what is the, I mean, what is a chassis or fabric that you really want to hold, which you want to reduce the lead time. What are the kind of sourcing, uh, you know, speed that you can get in terms of components and things like that. So that has to be, that can be significantly compressed by means of technology. As far as the creative process is concerned, there is a huge amount of uh, thing which is happening in terms of, you know, the patterns across the globe, the colors of choice and how people are trending and there is data and analytics to do that. So people, if they embrace that, they could actually be far, far more uh, nimble and flexible and fast in order to be generated. Where is it said that you must take six months to get inspiration? You can actually do that by looking at various things. So I think that that, that change is already happening in the online world, but I'm sure that it will also happen in the, uh, in the brick and mortar world because there's no reason why it should take 14 months to go to market. There is absolutely no reason why 14 months, what is the sacrosanct? I mean, Lord Ram went to Ayodhya for 14 years. <laughs> so 14 is by no means an auspicious number. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tell me, uh, what do you, you know, uh, uh, today when we do retail, a lot of it is around sell-through. You know, so apparently if you get that 50% number right, right, you know, everything seems to be season What is your take on this whole 50% sell-through logic and what do you think is the right thing or how do you think we should look at it? So I think that where this sell-through, there is a couple of ways to look at sell-through. Sell-through is, uh, if you look at the definition of sell-through, it is what you sold out versus what you bought. There is a ratio of the two. And any ratio, there is a numerator and a denominator. So if you got a 50%, it could mean two things. Out of 100 that you bought, you only landed up selling 50. So the question is that if you want to increase sales, people would say that, look, you know, if this is 50% sell-through is a given, instead of 100, you put 120. I think life is not as simple as that. Because if, if that is the case, so the, the logic I would forward is that if you just want to double sales, make 100, 200 then you must get double the sales. Yeah. It doesn't happen because demand is more or less fixed in a given space of a store. There is a certain demand only that can be done. So the so the sell-through percentage, it has got accepted universally saying that a 50% sell-through is great. Reality is that it is not. So for example, some of the best retailers across, they will say by the end of the season, we need to actually have about 85% to 90% sell-through. You know, and we don't want more than 10% of it to be left. 
Now, what they are doing is so you can do two things. Fix a denominator for the same level of demand. Create a stronger desire for what you are offering. So that is most important. So the thing is that if out of every 100 pieces you are only able to sell 50, that means you are, you know, you are, uh, what you are creating is very poor. I mean, you are, so therefore you need to actually dial up what you are creating to be far better. Secondly, the other thing is that if you are promoting and if these are your high volume products, then you need to promote so that instead of two, you can sell three. So therefore, I think the entire approach to trying to improve sell through. And in fact, I did have an experience of uh, in a particular place where actually the gross margins of a particular company move up from th moved up from 30% to 42% by cutting down 1 million units of buy per season. So, and they, there the starting point was, no, no, we can never get more than 50% sell through. So the question is, look, if you are only selling 50, why the hell do you want to buy 100? Why don't you buy 60? No, 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 but then we will get only 60, 50% sell through, we will only sell 30. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. It, it actually, what happens is that when you have too many products, you also actually take away, you know, the, the demand gets distributed over a larger number of products. So I think that you have to be very clear in terms of what your product line is. Can you actually drive productivity? I mean, options productivity. How do you actually promote it? How do you make it more desirable? How do you actually... So it also means that investing on the sales staff to be able to sell that a lot better. So I'll give you a classic example. When people are talk, talk about core, everybody wants to have core. Now, why do they want to have core? Because they say, no, no, it, we don't have end of the season problem. It can keep on going. It is evergreen and it can, what is called as, no, I mean, never out of stock and all those kind of things. But one of the biggest challenges that I've seen, uh, you know, when people operate is, while you've chosen actually this particular strategy of core, you put all your money in advertising in fashion. Now, mind you, core also needs to be promoted. So, therefore, if you've got a great product, you make it far more desirable because it can actually go through the roof in terms of sales. So, I think some of the best brands, they make sure that, you know, a typical white shirt is romanticized to an endless degree because of which everybody wants to wear a white shirt. So, therefore, rather than putting some money on a pink shirt with a conky fashion, which you want to sell, which very few people are going to buy. And very often it is to cater to the uh, boredom of the designers or some marketeer who wants. So I think that one has to be very sensible in terms of what to promote. So if you are very sensible and choosy about what you want to promote, then I think that this entire sell-through and you can find that you put your, I mean, and I've seen this happening, saying that whether it is India, Korea or any other place. For example, in Korea, what I saw was that they would actually, you know, typically be working on a 70% sell-through. And very, very quick replenishments. So, the question is how much you buy is also a function of how well you are able to replenish, how well you are able to actually service the requirement on time and then how quickly are you able to react to what is required. So, the problem is you got 1000 stores, you don't know which product will sell well. So, one of the things is that you know that overall aggregate demand, you know that you will sell 100 pieces, but you don't know which store will sell. So, the best way to actually manage that is to keep it in a central repository and move the product to where actually it is getting sold because then you are able to actually direct the supply to where the demand is. But if this is done well, the sell-throughs will go up through the roof because you are not left with, you are not left with the problem of unwanted stock lying in places where there is no demand and suffering from lack of stock where there is a demand. So this problem is there. Of course, some people try and correct it by what is called as an interstore transfer strategy which is again a very complex mechanism of determining where the demand is and where the demand is not there. And it requires actually algorithms to be able to actually optimize it. The moment you get into all that, 
you are actually layering with a complexity that many, many organizations can just not handle. They are not able to ship from one central point to 100 stores. Imagine in a network of uh, destinations and locations, how would they be able to manage? It becomes very, very difficult. So I think that the sell-through, I think, is, is to come with a simple belief that if there is a demand for 50, ideally I must give only 50. Now, yes, but I don't know. There is an uncertainty of demand. Therefore, I need to keep something in shop. Very often you will find that people have what is called as display stock. The display stock almost contributes to around 80 to 85% of the entire sales for the season. Which means you have little flexibility in terms of being able to service those goods. So if you are able to ma manage with a display stock ratio to sales, you know, something like around 50%, then you have tremendous amount of flexibility in diverting the stock. Then the sell-through becomes extremely high. So I think that this is unfortunately... When people go from one company to another company, and I think that the apparel industry is a small world, they take the same practices from one place to another. And therefore, after some time, you find this entire sell-through approach of saying that 50% sell-through, therefore, you must have so much of displaced stock, so on and so forth. I think this can be completely smothered. And I think it is uh, very, very easily, uh, you can look at the, some of the best retailers in the world, when they do, a, let's say, six stock turns. I mean, six stock turns means that they are only having eight weeks of inventory. In India, typically, you will find that the, the display stock, the store stock, typically, that people are holding is close to five months. On one hand, you hold five months of stock and then you say, my ambition is to make three stock turns. The match never works. So, this is the problem. So, therefore, the sell-through cannot be managed by uh, by managing the denominator. I mean, by not by managing the… Denominator, you have to manage the denominator. No, no, you have to manage the numerator for a given stock. Yeah, yeah. If you say, I got a stock of 10, I want stock turn of 3, you mean you need to sell 30. If demand is not there, then yeah, there is no choice but to actually reduce the denominator. So, yeah, I think one has to be very, very clear about that. And this is one of the biggest problems that I've seen in the Indian industry, where people have 14 months of stock, 12 months of stock, 2 years of stock, 1 year of stock. And this, without a clue in terms of what is happening, it is purely because they don't look at this number correctly. Because somewhere they're saying that we went with a 50% sell-through, tell us where we made the mistake. The mistake is you started with a 50% sell-through. Why will you make 100 if you are only going to sell 50? Ask that question. So, that is one of the biggest problems which I think is affecting every, every, I mean, I would say 80% of the brands, 80% of the industry. No, in fact, uh, you're absolutely right. People seem to be uh, manufacturing to fill up the store in a particular way rather than actually looking at what needs to be made uh, to sell or whatever is the capacity of that store to sell. Absolutely. I think that I totally agree with you. I think that what you rightly said is the what is the demand and the capacity to sell from a given given area of no space. space yeah. Where is it said that there must be a minimum display quantity? So and there are a lot of different measures with all ultimately. You must have a stock density of 2.3 per square foot ah. or 3 per square foot. Where is it said that? Now if they're saying no, no, otherwise the store looks empty. You can actually merchandise, I mean you can actually make the store look damn good by actually creative visuals or billboards, or you know, you know, you can have kiosks, you can do so many things, etc. to give that kind of experience that people want. How many of us go to the store and say, how many units of stock of this particular t-shirt do you have, then only I'll buy. Nobody is going, I mean, you're least bothered, as long as you get your this. And they say, you know, uh, you know, it doesn't look nice if you have only, only three pieces of something kept, it should be stacked from right till bottom till the end, so that there is no, there is no airspace. That is not, I mean, that is a warehouse, that is not a store. Yeah, yeah. So, I think that it has, it comes from fundamentally not doing enough homework on the brand side. So, your product has got to be really good. Your ability to sell has got to be really good. 
I mean, look at an Apple store. Take one to another category. I mean, how much of square feet of space do they fill up with their products? It is very open and so therefore, density, if stock density was the solution for increasing growth, that is the easiest thing to go and stuff it. Then I would rather sell from a warehouse. Why do I need a store? So I think that these are some of the things which I think people may understand it, may appreciate it, but they have to have the will to actually do this. Try it out and see what happens. And I think that there are enough examples of extremely successful operations where they manage inventory. In fact, in the apparel business, I, I mean, I'm, my experience has been that you don't win based on a PNL approach. You win actually on a balance sheet approach. If you actually focus on a balance sheet approach where you say that I want my inventory terms to be good because then you ensure freshness, you reduce obsolescence and you find that these are all huge factors in the gross margins. So typically a 5% gross margin difference can be brought about by an extremely well-run operation just by managing the entire product line well. Uh, I mean the width of the line. And this is basically on a traditional model because we are not talking about a situation where we have no inventory because if you have no inventory, then your return on investment is almost infinity. I mean, based on no no cost in the denominator, but that's not reality. So therefore, one needs to actually look at it in a slightly different way. No, no, it's, it's this is very interesting, and I think uh, you're one of the very few people uh, I have spoken with who has very strong and clear views on this. Uh, I want to, you know, from what I understand from you, and I put it in a very simple way, that a lot of building a brand is about saying no, what not to do. It's about not doing this, not adding extra styles, not, you know, getting very attached to any product. It's literally about saying no, 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 and just focusing on what works and just optimizing around that. Um, oh, okay. Now, uh, yeah, well, um, let me ask you uh, slightly, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of moving to a slightly different uh, aspect here. Uh, you know, among the, uh, some of the other myths that the industry has, uh, which are MOQs and, you know, various minimums, etc., etc. I'd like your thoughts. <laughs> so, I am, in fact, I'm uh, fairly allergic to anything that starts with, you know, M and ends in Q. <laughs> so, whether it is MOQ or MDQ or MSQ, the reason for this is that there is an overall logic and I would say that one needs to look at... Uh, if, if I may, if you could just explain those two terms for a viewer, so in case... Uh, so the MSQ is what is called as the minimum shipment quantity. And MOQ is the minimum order quantity for production. And the minimum display quantity is MDQ. So, in my view, all these three things put together is a nice recipe for disaster. So, and the reason for this is uh, very simple. So, I think that when we all look at global optimum, now, for example, I will give a simple simple example of a situation where somebody wants to actually maximize the loadability of a truck and therefore stuffs, waits for everything to get collected in order to actually fill up the truck so that there is absolutely no wasted volume in the truck. Obviously, that transportation cost has been optimized. But that comes at a huge cost because you may be waiting for four days before you supply the product to somewhere which is required. Now, the product itself maybe giving you a 40% margin. Whereas this particular impact on margin of this particular poor, uh, waiting for aggregation of the product at the back end may give you a 0.5% benefit in terms of the margin. Where is 40% and where is 0.5%? But the thing is that 
because we work in isolation because the warehouse manager's job is to actually maximize loadability minimize transportation cost it has got no bearing so therefore they work in isolation what is the overall good and that's why i'm saying that it is important for us to understand the global optima separate the global optima global optima here would mean trying to grab that 40% even if it means incurring 1% more in terms of the transportation cost same thing with shipment quantity you say that unless if you have an order of 1 i mean if you only order 6 only then we'll supply till that time we'll not supply but the problem with this one is classic place is japan japan had a stores called right on which is 550 stores they will order only one when escape and it used to go everywhere so for them the margins are so much more important and customer satisfaction is so much more important that this extra cost on transportation and logistics is inconsequential so once again global optima versus this would you go for this or would you likewise for minimum order quantity because the supply chain group will say that okay you know we can't do this because no it minimum order quantity is this pay an upcharge if you are confident of making a 40% margin and typically if you look at uh, you know look at look at the cost of goods versus the mrp typically it's about let's say 27 to 30% on that 30% if you give another 10% you're giving basically a 3% uh, you know difference but imagine that you're getting a 40% benefit in terms of the margin why would you not go after so this moq these are all i would say uh, self inflicted injury or it's like a self goal that you create for yourself and start working around these particular norms without realizing that okay does it make sense it doesn't mean that you can do this endlessly but one has to be very clear saying that in we we don't have to actually swear by these particular norms but actually use it as something to be to be concerned about but not actually you know stick to them because it is not helping in the overall business so i would say that all these minimum maximum etc etc are contextual and i think they have been taken to such an extent that you know it has actually become extremely counterproductive so one would actually need to look at the objective saying that my objective is margin growth then i would need to look at it in terms of how do i manage this so that is what i would say therefore these are all to me red flags in terms of you know mdq msq noq that is why i am saying that anything starting with nf m and it is a problem <laughs> no no that's in fact i you know when you were saying this i I thought I should name this as the Ayurveda versus modern medicine <laughs> <laughs> syndrome, which is where Ayurveda looks at the whole body holistically and solves the problem, and modern medicine decides that you have a problem, you have to solve it. When you solve that, then something else goes wrong with the ear, and so on, so forth. Yes. So, <laughs> tell me, uh, what you know? What do you think are the indicators? You know, in our uh, in our business. Uh, given the fact that we were talking about all this, what are the kind of indicators that really should, we should look at for whether the business is healthy or not healthy? What what works and what doesn't work, and what kind of myths do we hold? So I think that uh, you know the I would say that let's look at some of the leading indicators, and obviously there is a role for the lagging indicators also to play. So I would look at uh, maybe. every business in my view has normally two ways in which it actually tries to grow one one is that it tries to grow from the core grow the core because that is your core strength and then i would say the second second pillar is expand for more so having grown the core you say look i have the ability to expand for more so i think the the way i would look at that is that very often uh the growing the core becomes actually sidelined because it's not interesting 
I'm not talking about a core product, your core areas of the business. Now, there when you look at it, I would say the first thing I would look at is what is the kind of EBIT percentages and growth that you are able to register. Second one I would look at is that what is the kind of free cash flow you are able to generate, growth of free cash flow. The third one is the top line revenue. The, there are two other operational indicators that I would look at. One is in terms of, you know, the like to like store growth, because that is a clear indication of how strong, you know, your, you know, your every element of your, you know, sales infrastructure is, because if that is bad, you can, for example, keep on opening up more and more and more and more stores, but then you know that your foundation is extremely weak. So I would say that your like to like store growth is a very, very good indicator in terms of how it is really working. And the other one is that retail in general is a fairly significantly, you know, people intensive business. So I will also look at an indicator in terms of, you know, revenue per, per headcount to see how effective it is. Are we actually leveraging the people's strength as much as possible? So this is on one side as far as the core of the business is concerned. Now as far as expanding for more, I would see is that what is the contribution and the margin that you're getting from the new business? I would like to look at it saying that, you know, whether it's a new business could be a new category or a new type of store or you're getting into a new consumer segment, etc. Et These are all not the core, but you're actually extending. I would look at it, how, how is that doing in isolation? Because if you mix the two, you don't get a clear indication in terms of how your fundamental two pillars are working. And I think both are equally important. And I think we need to look at that. That's one thing. In terms of leading indicators is basically, I would uh, look at the indicators of their brand strength. You know, and I think that their brand equity scores, there are multiple ways to measure in terms of how strong are you coming across? Are you, a, are you, you know, would you aggregate it to a friend? You know, would you buy it next? There are so many measures in terms of the chance of stickiness of people to a particular brand. And I think today that's one of the biggest challenges because people are moving from one brand to another and there is repertoire buying that is happening. So I think the cost of customer acquisition is going higher and higher. But if you are able to retain those customers, one, and if you are able to avoid the churn, then actually it becomes an extremely profitable thing. Because for example, even if you spend 250 rupees acquiring a customer for let's say an average, uh, and they buy let's say this year, 3000 rupees worth of product, but next year they automatically come, then your cost of acquisition in the next year is zero. So it's a highly productive kind of a thing. So I think therefore the leading indicators of brand stickiness, you know, brand loyalty, and uh, you know, the, the, the way they feel about the brand. Is it a cool brand? If they want to be associated with it. They want to be part of the community. Do they want to be associated with number of things? Do they get, I mean, and today the battle is changing from product to customer experience. Do they really enjoy being in an environment where they like to shop? I'm talking about the traditional brick and retail models. I think that these are all the factors that I would look at in terms of measures. And the good part of it is all of these things can be measured. It doesn't have to be an opinion based kind of a thing. And there are, and it can be done on, you know, today using the, online, I mean, the net where you can get actually scrape the media and say that, okay, what do people have to feel about your brand versus others? So what do people think about it? What are they, what do they like? What they don't like, etc. Important thing is to draw the insights from there, fix your entire offering, the experience, the product, etc. to get a proper kind of a, you know, an optimal mix of that. And I think that this is one area where I know that international brands, they do a pretty good job. But I have not seen this kind of strength uh, in the Indian industry. Because there it is, unfortunately, it is hugely led by trade and things like that. And in my view, trade has got a very myopic view because they have a view of what is happening around themselves. They don't have, an, they don't have a view of what is happening across the country. 
and I think the, therefore it was more of a relationship management with many brands which are into trade, but it is not really based on what consumers feel. And I think that the more evolved brands, they understand what consumers want, how do they want to react to it, and I think that that's the leading indicator. The brand equity measures, along with the lagging indicators of the of the core business, looked at separately from the expand for more business. This is what I would be looking at in terms of. So, this is very interesting. Uh, another very thing that came to my mind when we were discussing is about uh, forecast accuracy. Because if a lot of this business is based on forecast, because you're making almost six to eight months ahead of time, uh, and you're trying to kind of predict what's going to happen, you know, uh, four months, five months down the line, and you're still trying to push a lot of new products. Uh, how does that kind of work out? You know, what kind of accuracy can you best achieve or what do you think? See, forecast accuracy by definition uh, would have a, I mean, why do people talk of forecast errors? Before even you go into a forecast, you would say that what is the forecast error that you are going to have? The more granular you start measuring it, the huge amount of uh, error will crop in. So, because, for example, if, there are 10 products and you have an ability to forecast actually the sale of a particular product let's say at 90% accuracy. So it is 0.9 is your probability of success. And if there are 10 products, it is so therefore what's the probability of success of getting these 10 right is 0.9 to the power of 10 which is some 0.000 something. So by that time itself your ability to forecast has already gone down by significant amount. But having said that, I think the role of forecast is to be able to play, uh, uh, a, you know, a balancing or a, I mean, it sanitizes the entire ambition to actually grow recklessly. Say, look, this is what the forecast says at an aggregate level. Aggregate level forecasts are very meaningful because they are far more dependable. So, for example, if you say that what is going to be the tea consumption in India a year from now compared to what it is at a macro level. You can easily predict that it may not be that much wrong. But if you're trying to predict the habits of a person by saying that if he's drinking two cups of tea, is he going to drink four cups of tea or five cups of tea? You can be grossly wrong. So, therefore, I'm saying the forecast has got a role in terms of a high level of accuracy so that you don't make two million shirts instead of making 500,000 shirts. Now, what shirt to make, how much will a particular red color shirt sell, etc. Those become extremely difficult to forecast. So, I think that in the industry, I think one would say that there is a pull factor in terms of a demand for a certain brand and certain experience and certain kinds of this thing. And not everybody is a designer. If it looks reasonably good, people will actually pick it up. If there is a brand value, they want to actually pick it up because it is either a, a Ralph or Lauren or a Levi's or so on and so forth. Those are all considerations. Not that everybody there is actually a, you know, is a stylist. They will actually, if a, ultimately they go with the recommendation of the stores guy, say they, this looks very good on you, they will buy it. But the people are also a lot more informed because even before they come to the store, they've already done their research and so on and so forth. Everything is done. So there are two factors to it. One is actually a mechanism of a pull, which you're saying that, okay, let it play. And that is what you try to forecast based on the pull factors. But at the same time, the weakness comes from the fact that you don't know what competition is going to do. Competition is not going to sit idle and saying, okay, let these, they've done a great forecast. Let them actually succeed. They're not going to do that. They will disrupt. So, therefore, when you look at so many events around that, forecast by itself is only part of the game. The second, and in fact, the more important thing is your ability to be able to respond swiftly and quickly. 
which means that do you have a complete backend which can actually quickly respond to some emerging trend and go and fill up that gap and extinguish that fire. That is, I think, today becoming a far more important uh, capability to build as opposed to trying to improve the quality of the forecast. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, there is a limit to the amount of uh, uh, accuracy that you can bring into a forecast. I would say that aggregate forecast at a high level is a huge help because it it it, it actually draws the you know the the sand. I mean, the line of the sand saying that thou shalt not go beyond this. But within that, how do you actually optimize the mix? What is it that I will do in terms of being able to allow it to see the natural pool? get an early indication of that and go and hammer and tongs and actually fulfill that particular demand before actually others can actually do, do anything about it. So I think it's a combination. I would say that I don't uh, subscribe to the view that, you know, the forecast must be completely done away with. The forecast at the right level is extremely helpful, but a forecast by itself cannot solve the problem without actually a responsive, you know, supply chain that can actually address the needs of any kind of an emergence of trend or you know desirability in the marketplace and i think the combination of the two is what can really work and for that some smart choices how can i actually quickly respond do i have a you know do i have an ability to actually compress my lead time on fabrics by actually having made some conscious choices in terms of fabric just like you make assortments of uh, product i think it is important to make fabric assortments you know and look at how those fabric assortments will fit in a in a mock store to say that okay i got these colors i got this particular texture i got all these kind of things and then i had choice to actually uh, make versatile products so i think that a good way of looking at it is that do you have products which can be versatile which i mean with i mean how much of versatility in fabric do you have some fabrics may have to do actually the job of being uh, driving a low cost one of them could be actually in terms of quick uh, very quick to be able to source because they are off the shelf so I think that if you look at a portfolio strategy for fabric and create a fabric platform, then I think it becomes extremely interesting in terms of being able to fulfill this particular demand. So I think that those are all things that needs to be fundamentally done right. It cannot happen automatically. And that is where coming back to your earlier question, this has to be planned. Otherwise, it cannot be done. Not planning, not so much as number crunching, as much as planning an entire set of, you know, things to be done in order to be able to do this right. So I would say that, for example, a network like Swiggy, Obviously, there has been planning which has been done in order to be able to fulfill. That planning, without the planning, it cannot be done. But you must have the ability to respond, you know, in terms of where will the demand go up and do I have enough number of people to cater to the demand? I think there are a lot, in every industry, it has got its own nuances. So I would say that forecast, uh, forecasting at an aggregate level with a very strong responsive supply chain is actually a recipe for success. Well, this is absolutely, uh, uh, you know, very, very interesting. So, I have another question on the uh, responsive supply chain piece. Uh, what exactly do you think a responsive supply chain should be like? How do you how do you structure? How do you create a responsive supply chain in our business, which is extremely fragmented? Uh, you know where uh, where also I think there are huge misconceptions about uh, uh, you know uh, or, or I'll say the where, the where the issue seems to be that product management does not seem to get the kind of importance that you know whatever you said till now has a huge amount to do with how do you actually manage the whole back end right and that's really merchandising and product management in it in it, in its essence it's really saying 
let's create buffer zones for this let's create logics for this create little little logics around fabric extremes etc allowing you to react very quickly but it doesn't seem to be happening i mean it's not something that you see much in the industry so how do you how does one do that i think it is we are going through a huge uh, you know scale of transition from what traditionally used to be you know 10000 trousers to be made or 10000 jeans to be made and the bigger the factory efficiency was there but i think now we need to look at efficiency in terms of different set of parameters like do we have flexibility how quickly can the product be turned around you don't require a 100 machine line you possibly require a 20 machine line to be able to turn around quickly and you possibly require more skilled workers you know so i think that there are a whole lot of things which will require um you know to be done in order to be able to cater to small uh, small volumes high quality fast response factories and i think that this is a place where technology can help this is a place and if some people start doing that it is something like this that you 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 remember recall that there was a time when actually there were large steel plants then suddenly there was this sponge iron that you know that cropped up everywhere so it's not about what is right or wrong but i think the need of the hour right now is for i mean do we have the supply chain to cater to the factories uh, so to the uh, to the front end uh, you know the customers now if if you're trying to ad- adapt an an existing line setup for something which needs to deliver on flexibility you know lot size batch size frequent quick turnaround change etc i think the, the vendor network itself has to undergo a mindset change and i think that is going to be a that is going to be a process that has to be undertaken by some of the pioneers who actually are believe that this particular this is the way to go and then therefore it is just like the you know the the issue around sustainability so there everybody talks about circularity sustainability and all those kind of thing but there are a lot of them i mean they're possibly playing lip service to it but you know they're okay over a period of time this is going to be any part and parcel of the entire you know factory network and so on and so forth but there will be a time when everybody will want to do the same thing similarly i think that once there are 10 successes of small factories that actually can turn around and do very deliver high quality stuff and there are some vendors who are willing to do the entire you know the full back end uh, you know uh, supply chain to cater to this kind of fast demand situations it is i mean it can be easily copied and after that but i think that uh, we are at that stage where we have to see the transition but i think the writing on the wall is very clear we, we have to do this because there is no other way in which you can cater to the requirements of uh, you know at least some of the online channels the d2c brands which are actually working on fast response they have no choice but to actually do this so at one level you know what has happened in our companies uh, we have verticalized various functions but in reality the best way is to actually you know integrate everything through and through so that the final goal is what we are trying to deliver and everybody focuses on that final goal and not you know locally optimizing each of their departments because that is where we are really creating a lot of inefficiencies uh, am i getting yeah. that uh, yeah, fundamentally right right because uh, if you're saying that the entire team it is like uh, you know process optimization and saying that we are all i mean there are two ways to look at it one is actually a functional approach to actually delivering an objective and the other one is as a as a seamless process approach in order to deliver that objective now uh, i think that in a process typical process uh, you know oriented team you're not looking at uh, individuals they are only domain experts in order to actually add strength to that combined team but everybody has got the same objective everybody has got the same end objective i think that is the role of leadership 
that will not happen on its own it is for the leadership to establish saying that success means this success doesn't mean only top line increase success doesn't mean only only this what to say that okay the, how we came and actually delivered is also as important as uh, something else so for example if the time for product innovation is reduced from let's say you know 3 months to let's say 10 days that's a huge success so i think so th- those kind of things need to be looked at together so i would say a very very comprehensive uh, simple way of looking at the business to say are we actually increasing our capability and core strength to deliver better on this and that will be a combination of supply chain it technology enablers because capability today will be people systems and technology and i am saying that then your entire distribution network partner and ecosystem they are only becoming bigger and bigger so the entire uh, lead, it is a it is a role of leadership to bring all these elements together and uh, make sure that they are all firing towards the same target that is what i would say it's a role of leadership it cannot happen on its own no no i tend to agree i tend to agree um i i i kind of think we've covered quite a few of the myths but i had a few more questions uh, really uh one is that you know uh, we and i always do this since it's a blue bites podcast i have this question around technology in the supply chain and so where do you think is the role of technology uh, in in supply chain today and uh, uh, how do you think things are going to evolve with technology and you know because uh, okay i'll 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 i'll, I'll also maybe try and express myself better so what has really happened is there are technology that are in bits and parts so there is technology that is probably trying to improve quality of something there is technology that is trying to improve factory or making the factory work etc but uh, in a sense uh, where does this really go forward how do you see this going forward because there is a very big leap that technology has taken place in a lot of consumer goods etc uh, in consumer facing things but in the back end it doesn't seem to be catching up so where do you think it's going to kind of go i think that if you look at the entire supply chain i think as as we were talking earlier also uh, supply chain there are a lot of things around two things one is we want speed now when we are talking about speed i mean i would take a simple process like a go to market process from the time of uh, you know let's say the the inspiration to the time a particular product is delivered in a store it could go through some 380 steps and typically you are not talking of five or six skus you are talking of thousands of skus so the problem is that how do you actually track this it is repetitive it is a, there is an overall method but the problem is that the devil lies in the details so here is a classic case where technology can help in actually identifying deviations from what should be happening and throw it up so that you know some intervention can happen now at the end of the day it's a long process things can go wrong so one of the areas is that wherever technology can bring in a huge element of speed and efficiency and i think that that still remains significantly unexploited so the benefits of reducing the lead time you know of a go to market process from we are talking about the 14 months i mean 14 months is too long let's say that if you are able to knock off 60 days of a of an entire go to market it's got a huge impact in terms of couple of things so firstly it's got an impact on your working capital you're not holding goods for that period of time secondly your ability to actually make right choices being coming closer to the actual time when people are going to you know buy a certain product 
those things become much better. So one area where technology can significantly make a difference is number one is that it will actually drive speed. The second thing it does is that it will, uh, I mean, typically as as it is called, it will drive a single source of truth. So there is there is no, it's not about any longer about opinion that information is there. And extremely important, it connects multiple people in the entire ecosystem to look at something so that they can actually take quick action in terms of whatever they need to do at their end in order to do that. So I think that from managing actually a set of, you know, metrics of a particular localized unit, I see the role of technology in terms of being able to manage the metrics of a large ecosystem where you don't have control on everybody, but everybody needs to work well. And that is the only way it can be done is when there is a common source of data which is dependable, authentic, transparent, and it is actually updated in a timely manner. So this is one part. Second thing is that it is also in order to try and do this manually is a nightmare. It's almost next to impossible. You cannot do that. There is a lot of computing. And of course, if you go to the next stage saying that there are patterns, there is analytics, and there is predictive methods of looking at various things. So it also actually does. It. Similarly, in the area of, let's say, product design and development, Today you've got, you know, freelancers, then you've got, you know, designers, then you've got product development, you've got merchandisers, you've got buyers, customers. Now it's a vast ecosystem. Now law most of the time is actually not spent in terms of the actual productive work. Most of it is queuing. Most of it is, you know, waiting for something. Most of it is waiting for approval. Most of it is. So the question is that if you're able to make this much, much simpler, things can happen much, much faster. And therefore people can actually spend time uh, on doing things that are actually value adding and therefore typical example is merchants. Merchants today are actually, you know, um, uh, sunk in a heap of Excel sheets and then they keep on doing something. Imagine if all that comes from a system, they can really go to the market and see what is competition, where am I going to drive the advantage, what can I really do better than what others are doing and what is trending well. I mean, they have no, I mean, they can look at all that. So today the problem is not data. The problem is actually drawing insights from data and converting it into a call to action to do something. That particular thing is not being done well. That is because people are half the time involved in actually chasing a whole lot of unproductive stuff because of lack of data or in terms of trying to, you know, figure out what is right, what is wrong and then connecting, etc. So the technology has got a definite way of linking up the entire ecosystem in a far more efficient manner. That is one major role for technology. The other one is saying that, you know, for example, repetitive work. A lot of it is repetitive work in the area of costing. You have similar products. You want to actually quickly figure out the costing and saying, okay, I did these kind of products, similar product. Can I actually give the costing in next next 15 minutes? Now, you can always pull it out from your repository and actually use that with some small little tree. Over a period of time, even AI can say that, okay, if these are the, you know, the changes, then you can actually get even a better indication. I think that these kind of things will come in very, very handy in terms of uh, this thing. The second thing is information, whether it's transportation, logistics. Now, if you know that, okay, inventory that various points across the entire line, then you know where exactly to actually work on that. Otherwise, you have actually, you know, isolated uh, decisions being taken without the understanding of the entire system inventory. All those kind of things can actually definitely play a major role in terms of that. And then, of course, technology can play a huge role in terms of one of the most important things is whether your design is good or bad. Now that is, it is, is it just purely subjective? Now, for example, there are multiple ways in which to look at whether you are going to be creating a winner or not. Technology can help in saying that, are you creating a winner or are you not creating to, uh, are you not to win? 
creating a winner if those decisions can become right the profitability of the business can have a significant change and i think that now you have the ability to actually use some of those technologies to say that i don't it takes the same time to create a wrong product as it takes time to create a right product so can i create a right product so i think the technology will have a role in terms of doing all these things but also there is a, a time to adapt which is where the skill sets of the professionals in this particular function so today do it in a traditional way they will need to change and that that will be uh, over a period of time it will change it cannot happen overnight because you know some people have to let go some of the ways of working and then do on other basis so i think technology will impact every aspect of the entire supply chain you know but largely data accuracy data availability data transparency uh, quicker decision making simplifying the methods of actually evaluating uh, whether something is good or bad and ultimately all these are uh, the supply chain is definitely the next area where the significant value unlock of the apparel business is going to take place without a doubt so that is for sure no no thanks i think uh, this was very very invaluable uh, so i just before we kind of i think probably conclude did we miss anything and or did we talk about we will always miss something because <laughs> things are changing at such a rapid pace but as i said at the moment we actually use a uh, use a, an approach of saying that we must be able to quick to respond we don't have to worry i don't think we need to have the fomo fear of missing out on something <laughs> always be able to catch up and uh, it's a it's always a long journey but it's interesting well, thank you so much i think uh, our viewers going to be really enjoying this conversation that we had uh, it's been a pleasure having you on our podcast so thank you again so much uh, for being here with us today thank you thanks for the opportunity